0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a non-partisan basis. And today, it's We the People Holiday Edition. In a season of many religious celebrations, complete with public expressions of faith, we explore the history and contemporary applications of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, which says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Joining me to discuss this fascinating question are two of the nation's leading constitutional scholars on the Establishment Clause. And uh, as icing on the cake, both of them wrote about the Establishment Clause for the National Constitution Center's wonderful new interactive constitution, which I want you to check out online at constitutioncenter.org. Michael McConnell is the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Marcy Hamilton is the Paul R. Vercoyle Chair in Public Law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law and Senior Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania in the FOX Program for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society. Michael, Marcy, thank you so much for being here.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Michael, let's begin with your and Marcy wonderful contribution to the interactive constitution. You wrote a common statement about what you both agreed that it was originally intended to achieve. And you talked about uh, what virtually all jurists agree that uh, would violate the Establishment Clause. Tell us about your common understanding of the core purpose and core violations of the Establishment Clause.
2: Well, I don't think there's much doubt that the core purpose was to make sure that the new national government was not going to establish a uh, a state church. A, a number of the states at the time, depending on how you count, maybe as so many as half of the states had something that we would regard as an establishment of religion, but nobody wanted the new national government to do that on a national basis. The most common form of establishment of that day, was what we might call a non-coercive and non-exclusive exclusive establishment, not where there wasn't one official state church, but instead a range of churches uh, and individuals were permitted to direct their uh, religious uh, taxes to the church, essentially to the church of their choice within a certain range, uh, but not to... Uh, not to stand aside and support none of them at all. So the idea here was that some form of religious uh, activity was necessary to the public good, uh, but that individuals should be able to choose what kind that would be. And there was a system like that in most of New England. There was It was proposed for Virginia and, and uh, Maryland and other states, uh, and eventually, I mean, uh, eliminated in all of those states. We, I think we can be pretty confident that any system like that, that coerces people to support uh, a church, uh, is unconstitutional.
0: Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. And uh, as you both said in your uh, joint statement, Uh, virtually all jurists agree that it would violate the Establishment Clause for the government to compel attendance or financial support of religious institution, for the government to interfere with a religious organization's selection of clergy or religious doctrine, for religious organizations or figures acting in a religious capacity to exercise governmental power, or for the government to extend benefits to some religious entities and not others without adequate secular justification. Marcy, what would you like to amplify about your common agreement about the original meaning and uh, of the Establishment Clause?
1: Well, by 1833, which was not terribly long after the Constitution was ratified and the Bill of Rights had been added, all states had disestablished religion. So while it was common, although not every state had an established religion, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and much of New York never had an established church, um, but, but a number of the colonies did, and uh, then the states, and, uh, but by 1833, establishment was out of the picture, and part of, the, uh, of our agreement is just part of the history of the United States, which is that there was quite a variety of religious backgrounds among early Americans, uh, both Puritans, Anglicans, Quakers, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, but also Jews arrived here over 350 years ago. So it was a diverse group, and that's probably what drove this concept of a multiple establishment uh, in some of the states, but it's also probably what what drove the fact that in a number of states there was no established church.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's um, take another beat on this and now talk about your areas of historic disagreement. Michael, you uh, have a great separate statement where you talk about how the establishment of religion was bad for liberty and bad for Religion to I can't resist, but ask you about the claim of some that the Establishment Clause was actually an anti-disestablishment provision. I love to get to use my SAT word, Uh, and in other (laughs) words, the 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 federal government was prohibited from establishing a national religion uh, in, in in and in order to protect the state establishments. Uh, and to prevent them from being disestablished. What do you make of that argument, And, and, and what is your distinctive understanding of the original purpose of the Establishment Clause?
2: Well, I do think that it's true that the original First Amendment not only prevented the national government from establishing a religion, but also from disturbing the existing arrangements at the state level. That's why it says no law respecting an establishment. That would mean no law establishing religion, and also no law disestablishing or in any way regulating the existing state establishments. No such law was ever proposed, so that actually never had any particular uh, practical significance, and since, as uh, Marcy points out, uh, the last state establishment was uh, eliminated in 1833. That was in Massachusetts. uh, Any Uh, anti-disestablishmentarian implications of the First Amendment, I think, are uh, long uh, since irrelevant.
0: Wonderful. I'm so glad that you got to say anti-disestablishmentarianism. And uh, Marcy, uh, do you agree with the anti-disestablishmentarianism thesis? And, And if so, some justices like Justice Clarence Thomas have argued that the Establishment Clause should not actually bind the states at all since it was intended to protect their state establishments rather than disturb them.
1: Well, it's my view that that is too narrow of a focus and that if we enlarge the lens through which we look at the history of religion in the United States, what we see is that many who settled in the United States came here for economic reasons, but they also came here for religious liberty. Why did they need religious liberty? Because of the tyranny in the country they had been living in, in Europe. Uh, there was tyranny across Europe, uh, and it depended on the religion. Uh, and there was a fresh memory for many who founded the United States of what religious tyranny can do. And so there was in, uh, especially in the writings of James Madison, who drafted the First Amendment, there was this keen awareness that there is Good religious liberty, and then there is such a thing as overweening power of religion, and that it is potentially dangerous. So that even in the memorial and remonstrance for which James Madison is so famous, uh, he basically said, almost during almost 15 centuries, has the legal establishment of Christianity been on trial? What have been its fruits? more or less in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy, ignorance and servility in the laity, in both superstition, bigotry, and persecution. Where did this come from? This this concept came from the education he received at Princeton with John Witherspoon, the Reverend John Witherspoon, who taught all of his students, and James Madison was his most shining uh, as in, in history, at least, and what Witherspoon taught them is that it's combinations of power that are dangerous. It's the it's combination of power between religion and the state. And much of what Madison was trying to do with the Establishment Clause was not just to provide religious liberty, but also to divide the power of the state from the power of religion.
0: Wonderful. Well, we can continue this historic debate, but it is the holiday season. So let's jump right into One of the many uh, categories of contemporary applications that you talk about in your great joint statement on the interactive constitution, and that is government sponsored religious symbols. Uh, You both talk about how this is a contested area, how uh, the court has uh, adopted a so called endorsement test, which asks whether a reasonable observer. Would regard the display as the government endorsing religion, and you talk about a bunch of cases, including Lynch versus Donnelly from 1984, where the court allows a nativity scene surrounded by other holiday decorations. This is known affectionately to law students as the Three Plastic Animals Rule. Michael, tell us about Lynch and Donnelly, and whether you think that the court's approach to government-sponsored religious uh, symbols uh, is correct or not.
2: But this was an area that's not only contested but also extremely confused. Uh, and the a lot of the decisions don't seem to make a great deal of sense although you know in the end they don't they strike a fairly um middle of the road uh, position but Lynch versus Donnelly was the first of the Supreme Court's religious symbol cases that involved a nativity scene as part of a city holiday uh celebration in a park along with the nativity scene there were any number of uh, secular symbols, including such exotic items as a talking-wishing well, <laughs> as well as the usual candy canes and Santas and so forth and so on. And the, the logic of the court was that there, it does not violate the Constitution for the government to uh, include a specifically religious symbol, so long as it's in a context which... Um, which includes other things as well, and that's where the three plastic uh, animals uh, uh, come in. Uh, shortly thereafter, the court said that it was unconstitutional to have a nativity scene all by itself on the steps of a, a city-county uh, building, and then there have been a number of cases uh, uh, ever since. Um, this is partly confused because the court has is making all of this up, that this really has no Uh, no grounding, uh, no foundation uh, in the founding, uh, and is entirely a modern preoccupation.
0: Um, Marcy, do you agree or disagree, and what what are your thoughts about whether the court's approach to government-sponsored religious symbols is correct or not?
1: Well, I do agree with Michael that the court has kind of landed in the middle. Uh, And so what's really problematic? What's problematic is a clearly religious scene It is in a clearly government context, and so a nativity scene on the steps of a courthouse uh, that are the focal point of the courthouse, that's a problem. Uh, The Ten Commandments in a courthouse where there's supposed to be neutrality and justice toward all citizens, again, a problem. Uh, But if you have a display with the plastic animals and all the rest of it in a shopping district, uh, in which the local government is generating tax proceeds, the court is saying, essentially, look, that's, that's as much for secular as religious purposes, so it's not the end of the world, that there are some religious symbols involved. It's my view that this evolving doctrine has never been more important, and the reason for that is because the diversity of religious believers in the United States continues to proliferate, so that we now have over 100,000 sects Across the United States, and as uh, Diana Eck at Harvard has done such a lovely job in her uh, pluralism project, you can see that we have a face that we never would have expected in the middle of, of the Midwest, and it is now a very diverse country. That diversity requires from the government even more care about neutrality. And I think what these cases are essentially saying is that it is a government of all the people believers or non-believers, and that when the government appears to be backing one religious viewpoint, that is a constitutional violation. And it's a constitutional violation because essentially it's made the mistake that Madison identified, which is that it is an unholy union of power between the government and the religious entity. And in that circumstance, it is telling other citizens that they have essentially been left out. So we we definitely disagree on whether this is a good doctrine or not, Uh, but we agree that uh, the courts pretty much landed right in the middle of where it could have landed.
0: Great. Well, Michael, let's go back to first principles. Uh, How would the framers of the Establishment Clause have approached the question of government religious displays, and would they have allowed the display of the Ten Commandments or a crash?
2: Well, I think it's pretty clear that they would not have regarded this as, violating the First Amendment. The First Amendment, after all, says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, and and having a religious symbol on government property is not a law. And um, I think that's that would be what they would have said. I also think it's pretty clear from history that they were not bothered by this sort of thing. We don't know what Madison would have said about any of these examples, but we do know uh, that Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams were named to a committee to design the first seal of the United States. And what they came up with was a woodcut depicting the uh, episode in in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites go across the Red Sea, and then the sea closes behind them, uh, trapping the, the chariots of the uh, Egyptian pharaoh who was chasing them. And around the edge of the seal, it says, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Thomas Jefferson liked this seal so much that he adopted this as part of his own personal uh, seal. Uh, Obviously, our founders did not think that using uh, religious imagery uh, as part of the the, uh, culture and even official culture like the Uh, feel of the United States was a constitutional problem.
0: Uh, Marcy, your response, do you agree or disagree?
1: Well, I I, I don't agree. Um, But the main reason that we disagree is that I I don't think that it's terribly relevant what the framing generation would have thought about uh, the images that we see today. Uh, There was uh, much more concentrated... Uh, religious sects, that they lived in certain areas together, and then others lived in other areas. Now, we had real diversity, um, but it wasn't that it was extremely diverse, as in uh, different faiths necessarily living next door to each other, uh, especially in a lot of the established uh, cities. And so I I don't see the same uh, notion that this is um, easy to, to push off the table and say that it really doesn't amount to much. I think it amounts to much more now than it ever has. Uh, And I actually think, not to bring politics into this, but I I think that Donald Trump's focus on uh, excluding Muslims as a way of solving a social problem is an example of how far we have come from that time. We now have great diversity and we have a sense of diversity. And the vast majority of Americans just outright have rejected the concept that you would just Screen people by their faith right at the border, and I think that fact uh, that we see it that way, and that there are so many now who have come out of essentially the the silence of the closet, and now they say, you know, I don't believe in God. I'm either an atheist or I've, I'm an agnostic. These are different times, and I think that for James Madison's principles, I think that it makes a lot more sense now. Uh, than it did then, that, in fact, the government really can't be backing any one particular religion. And in fact, it gets into trouble when it starts backing a set of religions.
0: Uh, Thanks for that. Uh, Michael, uh, Marcy mentions uh, Donald Trump's recent proposal that would ban all Muslims from entering the United States. I'm interested in your views about whether that would violate the Establishment Clause. Lawrence Tribe of, of Harvard argues that it would violate the uh, Establishment Clause, uh, which is a flat prohibition on actions that the U.S. government may take, including those actions that respect an establishment of religion. Uh, others have disagreed. Akilah Maher suggests that Congress could ban uh, non-Muslim citizens but non-Muslim citizens from entering the country. What is your view about the constitutionality of Trump's proposal?
2: Well, I do think we need to add a new fallacy to our list of uh, logical uh distractions the argumentum at trumpium uh, in which uh when when one is talking about a serious subject to uh, talk about what Donald trump thinks about it is uh, is never going to get us uh advance the argument uh it was whether his his particular proposal to uh ban uh muslim non citizens is a terrible idea uh, that doesn 't make it unconstitutional it doesn 't violate the establishment clause uh, but uh, but that doesn 't make it a, a good idea. It also has absolutely nothing to do uh, with um, modern establishment clause uh, controversies. I would like to comment uh, on 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 marcy 's general view that the increasing diversity of the United States is a reason to uh, have a more pristinely secular a public sphere, and I think actually quite the opposite is true: uh, that when this was an overwhelmingly Christian country, one could indeed mistake uh, nativity scenes and and uh, Christmas bells and so forth uh, as being uh, the expression of an established religion. The less that is true, the more we have a multiplicity of faiths, and the more, as is also true, uh, that uh, cities. Uh, recognize and welcome uh, a wide variety of religions in their public uh, observances, uh, it it becomes even less and less uh, likely to be uh, perceived as an establishment. So, for example, there was a very interesting case uh, in the Third Circuit uh, coming out of uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, in which uh, the city uh recognized had religious symbols from uh the muslim faith at the uh, during during their uh, holidays the jewish faith at an appropriate time a number of different uh, religious and other cultural groups at different times of the year and uh at the end of december they had a uh, a, a christmas uh uh ornament uh, i i think it was a nativity scene uh in its public space and they argued that the context there is not three plastic animals, but rather the recognition on, of the religious symbols of a diverse uh, group of people that live in, uh, in New Jersey City. And that, that strikes me as a, actually a much more uh, welcoming and inclusive uh, project than to try uh, to keep religion out. The, the real problem with trying to keep religion out is that there's no stopping place? Maybe you begin with the, uh, you know, obviously uh, sectarian or obviously a religious symbol like perhaps a nativity scene. But as we have seen in public schools and public universities and other places, um, there's there's no stopping point. Pretty soon you're asking, well, what about the Christmas tree? Can it have a star uh, on the uh, on the top? And, and 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 why Santa Claus is is Santa Claus a secular symbol or is Santa Claus actually a symbol of of Christmas and therefore of Christianity and there really is no logical stopping point uh, shy of having public spaces undecorated at the holiday seasons and that doesn't actually strike me as advancing. Uh, the clause of recognizing the diversity of viewpoints uh, of Americans.
0: Marcy, what do you make of Michael's suggestion that as long as the public square is open to all faiths on equal terms, uh, there's no Establishment Clause violation? That was the kind of reasoning that the court embraced in the Town of Greece versus Galloway case from 2014, where, as you talk about in your joint statement, the court approved an opening prayer at a town council meeting when the town represented that it would accept prayers of any faith. What do you think of this idea of equal access to all religions?
1: Right. Well you know, Michael has mischaracterized my position. Essentially he's accused me, as so many on his side of this debate accuse anyone on the other side of uh, being in favor of no religion, and, and, and nobody in the United States uh, had, with any kind of common sense is in favor of no religion anywhere or thinks it's possible. The question is, either the government uh, is hosting diversity, pure diversity of religious faith, or it is a secular space. And so let's imagine that you have a park, and it is in your um, downtown area, uh, or it is near your state capital. In that park, you, uh, the, the state has decided they'll post the Ten Commandments. Uh, a group comes in. They're called the Satanic Temple. Uh, they celebrate essentially uh, secular values, but they are a religious group with a Satanic symbol. And they come in and say, well, we would like to bring our diversity, our statue of Satan into this same space the government now has a choice. It can either keep the Ten Commandments and the Satanic Temple, or it can make it a flower garden or something that is shared by all Americans. And what's been happening is that as the Satanic Temple has been asking to have its own religious symbol demonstrated in particular locations— the governments have decided that they really didn't need that religious symbol there, that they can do just fine with a secular symbol. So diversity, yes, but it has to be true diversity, and the government has no business choosing between some religions uh, and others. But I would also uh, amend the, the way in which Michael described our history. And that is that we did not start as a a unified Christian country where uh, any Christian would look at any symbol and say that that's my symbol. We started as a country of sects that were distinctly different. They felt their differences. Uh, In Massachusetts, Quakers died because of their faith. Uh, In Pennsylvania, Quakers themselves set up a governing system where non-Quakers could not serve in the government. Uh, even though Quakers are known for tolerance, they couldn't possibly have let non-Quakers serve because they weren't close to God uh, at one time. And so we started in diversity and felt diversity and difference. We, now That's now times 1,000. And I think that the Establishment Clause is the best mechanism there is, in my view, in the world, actually, Uh, among all governing structures, that makes it possible for us to have over 100,000 sects, but actually one national government and individual state governments. It is, in my mind, the path to peace and the insistence that any particular religion, whether it's Christian or not, uh, be uh, close to the government or owned by the government, is an invitation for discord.
0: Michael, of course, I'd like you to respond, but I'd also like our listeners to understand how Marcy's and your positions uh, broadly differ. Is, 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 she, is it too simple to say that she is saying that the government has to be neutral among religion and irreligion, and, and you're suggesting that it has to be neutral among religious sects? How, how would you characterize the difference between you?
2: Um, well, let me just begin by saying that I did not hear myself accuse Marcy of any particular position. All I suggest is that uh, the idea that we can stop legal doctrine at, uh, at, at just excluding, you know, highly specifically religious symbols, has not proven to be true. That there is a, uh, there, there's that you may begin there, uh, but we see around the country right now we see public universities that are forbidding. Uh, any symbols that are associated with Christmas, whether they are religious or, or not, uh, and certainly public uh, schools are like that. My children at one point went to a school where uh, where the only holiday that they would celebrate in December was Beethoven's birthday. Uh, I think when the, if the government were very small, this wouldn't much matter, but when the government controls me- most of the major spaces in which uh, people a congregate in which we live our lives together to turn those spaces into a strictly secular space would not be, uh, would not be reflective of the diversity of, of the United States. And I'm not saying that that's where um, Marcy or very many people actually want to end up. That is where the doctrine ends up uh, if we walk down uh, that road. Um, As to the general question, I, I, I think that when we're talking about government speech, that is, what kinds of symbols the government is going to be uh, uh, putting into the public square, that the kind of neutrality we should be looking for is one in which the government and the public uh, space reflects the culture of the country. That is, when the the government is using its power uh, to push one position rather than another, uh, that that is the evil uh, when the government is simply opening the public parks to the kinds of celebrations, uh, that people, that the culture naturally, uh, uh produces, when the government reflects the culture as opposed to, uh, uh, tr- trying to drive the culture, I, I think that that is the kind of neutrality that we're looking for where the government, re- uh, is, uh, uh, is not pushing us in one direction or another. It's not pushing us toward Christianity. It's not pushing us toward religiosity. It's not pushing us towards secularism. It is simply uh, accepting uh, the uh, mix of religious, secular, many different religious views uh, that are present among the American people.
0: Uh, Marcy, what is your uh, response to Michael's vision of religious neutrality? He uh, prominently argued in one, uh, the Rosenberg case, where the Supreme Court said that it was fine to make uh, school spaces available to religious and non-religious uh, school groups on on equal terms. Uh, Justice Brennan in the Widmar case made a, a similar vision. What, what, what about the, Michael's suggestion that really uh, the, the question is uh, the government has to be uh, neutral and, and make its spaces available to secular and, and religious uh, groups and symbols on, on equal terms?
1: Well, it's my view that Rosenberger was wrongly decided, and, of course, it was a 5-4 decision. Um, and it was, unfortunately, with Rosenberger, what the court did is they used uh, free speech as the governing paradigm rather than the establishment clause. It was the dissent that would have followed the establishment clause. And in that case, it was a question of whether or not the University of Virginia had to give money to a religious student group that engaged in uh, proselytizing activity. And the court held that the government must be neutral across all um, ideas, even in an educational setting, uh, and that it didn't really matter that the government was supporting proselytizing. And so, in my view, that was the beginning of taking the wrong step with respect to the Establishment Clause. Um, And we are now at a point where well, we have a court that is generally hostile to the establishment clause. It has been working very hard to try to reduce the number of claims that can be brought under it. Uh, and uh, the, the the problem is that there is a nostalgia among some of the members of the court and some Americans for the simplistic or the simple Christian nation that we had at one time. Uh, we never had that. That was never accurate, as uh, the great Bernard Bailyn has uh, documented. And instead, we've always had the question of how do you mediate between all of these different religious groups that each one thinks the other was basically wrong. Uh, and the way you mediate is that you have a government that's neutral towards all. So I agree with Michael to the extent that what we're talking about is in a public space if there are going to be religious symbols, the government must open it up to other religious symbols. But I actually disagree with the uh, empirical notion that the government controls uh, most of the major spaces, because it's just not true anymore. Uh, The government does not control the vast majority of the Internet, and that is basically where we communicate. Uh, And At this point, there is an explosion of communication from religious voices, non-religious voices, and the government's there somewhere, but control of the message, not even remotely due to the government, and certainly not due to any kind of displays that are, (coughs) excuse me, concrete. And so, (coughs) excuse me, basically we've ended up with a scenario where the government must be neutral, It should be neutral. I think Michael and I agree on that. The real debate is over how much diversity there has to be so that the government's not backing one particular viewpoint. And that's that's still an open question.
0: Uh, Great. Well, let's explore some of the other areas that you talk about in your common statement. Uh, In your common statement, you talk about aid to religious institutions, and you say that scholars have long debated between two opposing views of the Establishment Clause, as it applies to government funding. The first says government has to be neutral between religious and non-religious institutions that provide education or social services. The second, that no taxpayer fund should be given to religious institutions if they might be used to communicate religious doctrine. Michael, I, I, I gather you think that the first one is correct. Tell us about that and how that has played out in decisions uh, like the Everson case, like the Allen case involving uh, aid to uh, religious schools.
2: Um I I do think that that position is correct, both historically and in terms of the values of diversity and neutrality and pluralism that we've been talking about, that um, uh, sometimes the government just pursues government services on its own, that is, through government institutions, but very frequently what the government does is it recognizes that a certain diversity of approach uh, is in is in the common in the common good and so they provide grants or subsidies to private institutions uh, to engage in these activities and this is just there's just a bewildering array of uh, of programs of this sort uh there's elementary and secondary education there public unit there there's the university world where we not only have uh, institutions like uh, University of Massachusetts but also like Marcy's institution of uh, yeshiva University which is a a, a religious uh, university or my private institution which is a private secular uh, institution we also we have hospitals we have clinics we have uh, uh, poverty programs we have uh, uh, we have uh, you know, lunch programs for the for the poor. We have rehabilitation programs. We have any number of of uh, services and and educational and welfare uh, activities in which the government provides a subsidy uh, to a range of um, private institutions. I think on the theory that private institutions are going to approach these tasks in different ways, and thus will be able to. Uh, Serve a, a, a larger number of the population uh, than uh, than a one size fits all uh, government uh, only uh, approach. And when the government does that, uh, it, the, the the earlier approach, early part of this uh, of our republic, and then the current approach, is to allow religious institutions to be among them not to give them any advantage, but also not to discriminate against them, that if you can have private groups that are pursuing their particular vision of of, uh, of the common good, that there's nothing wrong with religious groups doing pretty much the same.
0: Thanks for that. Uh, Marcy, as you note in your comment statement, the court has applied this neutrality vision uh, to uphold school vouchers in cases like the Zellman case from 2002, which held that programs that provide aid to educational or social programs on a neutral basis only as a result of the genuine and independent choices of private individuals are consistent with the Establishment Clause. Uh, Was Zellman correctly decided or not?
1: Well, Zellman was very closely decided, and many expected Justice O'Connor to go the other way and that it would have been unconstitutional. But in the end, what persuaded her is that uh, the... Uh, government was providing true choice, and this was the, the phrase that uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist used. It was true choice, and so there was a wide range of choices for the parents in choosing how to use the funds that were coming from the government to go to a school. And so in a lot of ways, the parents were actually uh, an intervening decision maker between the government money and the fact the money landed in some religious schools. Uh, In my view, that decision was a bit disingenuous because of the fact that the small amount of money that was provided meant that the vast majority of it was going to go to parochial Catholic schools rather than to any other schools. Uh, But on the other hand, I, I think it's defensible to say that true choice, in other words, a wide variety of options for parents to choose for sending their children, uh, is going to be much less problematic under the Establishment Clause. Uh, the, the open question that remains after that case is what would be a set of choices that's not a true set? Uh, what's not true choice? And the court simply just hasn't taken those cases. And also, part of what's happened is that uh, voucher schemes are expensive, and we had a downturn in the economy. and <laughs> It's become harder to even do voucher systems. And so uh, we just haven't had the test to find out how far you go from this principle that if many schools across all options are open, uh, that's constitutional. What if it's only some of the religious schools or some of the secular schools? That might be a different result.
0: Thanks for that. Well, I think we have time for one last topic on this great podcast, and that is the Question, of government-sponsored prayer. As you note in your joint statement, uh, the court's best-known establishment clause case has held that it's unconstitutional for public schools to lead school children in prayer or Bible reading. And those are the Engel and Vitale case from 1962 and the Abington case from 63. Michael, were those cases uh, correctly decided? Why or why not?
2: I do think they were correctly decided because I don't think that it is that there is any way for uh, for a teacher led spoken prayer in public schools to be either diverse or uh, non-coercive. Um, the harder question is whether there can be uh, opportunities for prayer in other public settings. So for example, uh, President Obama's inaugurals begun and ended with uh, with prayer. Uh, we had a lot. There was a fair amount of public prayer in the wake of the 9/11. It seems to be something that, the, that we turn to uh, at times, particularly of crisis. There have been uh, chaplains and prayers in the United States Congress uh, since the very first Congress, and so are. And that has is also uh, permitted at uh, uh, at city councils. I'm uncomfortable with the way a lot of this is done. I'm not sure how valuable an experience it is. Uh, Sometimes I think what is happening is that politicians are trying to grab the uh, mantle of religiosity uh, for their own uh, ends rather than this being any kind of a sincere or spontaneous uh, uh, activity. Uh, so I think there are a lot of hard cases about public prayer and public uh, occasions, uh, but the Supreme Court has not uh, closed the door to those. They seem to be uh, looking at these on a fairly uh, case-by-case basis. You know, where, where the Town of Greece uh, uh, City Council prayer being the most uh, recent example, where the court said that, that it is constitutional uh, to allow. For there to be a, a time of prayer at the beginning of the city council meeting where the prayers are delivered by uh, members of the public who come forward and put their, their names on a list and are uh, chosen on a neutral basis.
0: Uh, thanks so much for that. Marcy, as Michael suggests, and as you both suggest in your joint statement, the controversial cases involving prayer involve less coercive settings involving adults like Marsh and Chambers where the court upheld legislative prayer, which was steeped in history, and the Town of Greece case, which Michael just mentioned which approved this uh, uh, prayer at uh, town meetings and was ostensibly open to all. Were those cases correctly decided, and and why or why not?
1: Well, I I do think that in general, certainly the public school cases have been decided correctly, that the principal may not read a prayer over uh, the PA system each morning, because there's no way for a child to understand that it's not being prescribed to them. Uh, With respect to Marshview Chambers, you know, the the court said that legislative prayer had not resulted in an established religion in so far, and then since it had been happening for a long time, it couldn't be a bad thing. But I have to say I was shocked. Uh, About four years ago, I testified in Columbus, Ohio, uh, on issues involving clergy sex abuse, and so the room was filled with victims of clergy. And uh, each session opened with an explicit prayer, not just a non-denominational or a, let's have a let's all uh, praise God prayer, but a specific prayer to Jesus. And I found that to be very jarring. Uh, so I do think that the notion that the, um, there is no establishment is uh, in, in a number of states. Actually, I think it's worked out so that we have certain religious entities that have, in fact, uh, made their mark known and, and taken over some of that. With respect to Count of Greece, I think that case was completely wrongly decided. Uh, the notion that a, a community that had very consciously looked for certain types of believers to give a prayer Uh, rather than others, was an indication already that you had divisiveness. But what I found most troubling there is that this was a town council meeting for business for the town. And the people who were attending the meeting, some were religious, some were not religious. I do not understand the need for it or, or the positive aspect of it. The court held that it was fine because there had been some diversity. And so long as there was future diversity, uh, it would be fine. And, of course, one of the first groups to do something were the atheists. Uh, But I think the whole thing was a political play, just as Michael describes. It was politics. It was unfortunate. And I don't really think the court did anybody any favors by opening that door.
0: Thanks so much for that. Well, it is time for closing statements uh, Michael, let me ask uh, you, uh, what was the core historic purpose of the Establishment Clause, and why is it important today?
2: <laughs> of course, uh, the core purpose is the same thing that it was 45 minutes ago, uh, and it's important because religion is important. If religion were not important, uh, then we would be uh, talking about something else. And the the idea of the, the combination of an establishment clause and a free exercise clause is that we leave this important area uh, to private people. Uh, I, one of my favorite statements from the Supreme Court actually comes from Justice uh, Douglas uh, when he said that the religion uh, the, will be left to the attractiveness of religion will be left to the zeal of its proponents and the appeal of its dogma. Uh, rather than political power. And I think that's just as important uh, a principle today as it ever was.
0: Wonderful. And Marcy, last word to you. What is the core historic purpose of the Establishment Clause, and why is it important today?
1: Uh, The core historic purpose was to separate the power uh, of the state from the Church so that neither one could overpower the other, uh, because the framing generation fundamentally understood what happens when there is a unity of power between church and state. Uh, And it is more important than ever uh, that we understand this. Uh, And in fact, the Establishment Clause, in my view, is the most innovative element of the United States Constitution, especially the way in which it has evolved. And for my money, it is by far the most important element that has the capacity to keep the United States both safe and
0: peaceful. Wonderful. Well, uh, this has been a superb conversation. It beautifully complements your great uh, debate and consensus on the interactive Constitution, which I want all of our listeners to check out for further education. Uh, I will not wish our listeners uh, Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah, but I will say Happy Holidays. And thank you so much, Michael McConnell and Marcy Hamilton, for joining.
2: Merry Christmas to you
0: too, (laughs) Joe. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks to both of you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicondro Ianacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash ConstitutionCTR, and on our Twitter feed at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org or just email me, JRosen at ConstitutionCenter.org. I would love to hear what you think. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the Center, across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.